Um, If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. I got to admit, I'm extremely nervous and hesitant about the message this morning for the simple fact that Randy left me with a, a booger of a passage. I was talking with him about what should, uh, you know, what should I preach on when he asked me to fill in. It's Memorial uh, Weekend. What should I preach? He said, preach on whatever you want to preach on. He said, you're a seminary student. Do whatever you want to do, whatever God leads you. And I came back to him a few days later and said, well, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, so I want to stick with that passage. Little did I know that we would be talking about fasting on Memorial Weekend when we go and have barbecue and uh, ribs and, and fried fish all weekend. So uh, bear with me through the, uh, through the message this morning. I believe we'll have um, some, some major insight into what fasting uh, really is. If you would stand with me as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 16. Jesus says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you just calm our nerves this morning, allow us to settle in and hear a fresh word on what you have to say this morning. We thank you for your word. We just thank you for the the worship that's taken place so far this morning. Just pray that the message, the words, are those that you would have us to to hear. We love you and praise you first in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In October 1947, a four-engine B-29 bomber took off from Murrick Field in Southern California. Attached to the belly of that bomber was an experimental plane piloted by a man named Chuck Yeager. As that bomber reached 25,000 feet, Yeager detached his experimental plane, fired his rocket engines, and then proceeded to ascend to 42,000 feet. See, in the world of aviation, the sound barrier was once considered the unbreakable barrier. Most engineers believed that Mach 1 was, uh, was considered the unbreakable barrier, was an impenetrable wall of air, and the few pilots that, uh, that tried to break that barrier, they died and they testified, they solidified the belief of that, of that barrier. At low speeds, shock waves mean very little. But as a plane reaches higher and higher speeds, new levels of aerodynamics are reached. The British even suspended their attempts to accomplish the, to accomplish the sound barrier when their experimental plane called the Swallow self-destructed just nearly before it reached Mach 1. But that didn't stop Chuck Yeager from, from accomplishing uh, history. On that October day, as he approached Mach 1, his, began, his plane began to shake violently, uncontrollably had a difficult time controlling his plane. It didn't help that a couple of days earlier he suffered two broken ribs in a horse riding accident. But he didn't, he didn't want to uh, delay his time in history by, by disclosing that information. 
As he reached ever closer to Mach 1, the G-force caused his vision to become blurred, his stomach turned, and just as it appeared he would lose control, even nosedive and disintegrate, there was this loud sonic boom followed by this eerie silence. Jaeger had crossed the sound barrier, 761 miles per hour. The, the air pressure that caused this plane to rattle and shake violently now shifted to the back of the plane. Just before cutting his engines, he had reached Mach 1.07 and then he descended back down to earth. The unbreakable barrier had been broken. See, just like the sound barrier, there's a faith barrier. And that faith barrier is to the spiritual world what the sound barrier is to the physical world. Sometimes as you reach closer and closer to the breakthrough, you feel like you're going to shake violently, lose control, maybe even uh, self-destruct, disintegrate, nosedive. But there are times in life when God wants us to experience the supernatural sonic boom of a lifetime and prayer alone just may not be enough. See, it's no coincidence that earlier in the chapter, Jesus teaches us how to pray. Then he goes into teaching us how to fast. You see, you can pray without fasting. You can even fast without praying. But I believe there are times that we experience a supernatural breakthrough, a sonic boom, so to speak, when we do both praying and fasting in tandem. Sometimes praying on that, praying on an empty stomach may be the most powerful prayer posture uh, that we need because it puts us in a place where we say to God, you are all I need. All other cravings don't match up to the craving that I have for you. But my question in studying this uh, topic is, what does Jesus have to say about fasting? I mean, some of us might look at fasting and think it might be uh, a health benefit might be a great spiritual discipline. See, I was even confused. Why would God want us to suffer so much not eating, put, put ourselves through this pain? Why would it be necessary to do that? But I think Jesus gives us some, uh, some guidelines on what he's looking for when we fast. There are four points I want us to, uh, to look at this morning um, as we go through this text. The first one is this. The practice of fasting is uniquely Christian in in method and in motive. Look at the text, verse 16. The first three words. Some translations may say when you fast or whenever you fast. So I think that's important. He doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. Now, what is fasting? Some of us may not understand necessarily what fasting is. For our purposes, we're going to keep it pretty, pretty clean and simple. Fasting is when you abstain from food for a, for a predetermined period of time for a predetermined purpose. Now, there are fastings that you can do for technology reasons, for health reasons, for uh, you know, sex, things of that sort. But we're going to keep it simple. We're going to focus on fasting as abstaining from food. But notice, a predetermined period of time for a predetermined purpose. In the book of Esther, Verse 416, she says, fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, so that I, I and my maidservants will fast as you also fast. So 
here we have a little bit of a guideline. We have food and, and drink being uh, as, far, as far as fasting, but we also have a purpose. What's the purpose in fasting? Well, fasting reveals our inadequacies. It reveals our inadequacies, and it shows God's self-sufficiency. So we can fast, and there's a number of ways I'll go through and talk about here in just a second. We can fast for a number of days, one day. We can even fast during a lunch period, during a day. There are a number of ways we can fast. I think the most important thing in this fasting is the purpose. Why are we fasting? And as we go through the text, that's what we're going to focus on. The purpose, I believe, is more important than the time. Fasting, though, is a common practice. It's not something that is uncommon to us. It is very common throughout history and in the world for, for several reasons. One, it's a universal religious practice. Most religions in the world practice fasting, whether it's the, uh, the Jewish custom on Yom Kippur with the Day of Atonement, whether it's the uh, Muslims with uh, the month of Ramadan, Christians with, the, with Lent. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, practice that is universally done around the world. Most religions do this. But it's also been used for political purposes. Mahatma Gandhi, probably one of the more famous examples, who's used fasting for political purposes as he protested British rule in the nation of India. Fasting, most people might see fasting as a health regimen. You know, they fast for dieting. Hundreds of organizations spend millions and millions of dollars promoting fasting for health. People fast in times of mourning, in times of thanksgiving. They fast in times of showing spiritual discipline. They might do it annually. Again, the purpose, I believe, the, the point of fasting, I believe, is, is more the purpose. Why are we fasting? We even have some biblical examples. Moses fasted for 40 days, just as Jesus fasted for 40 days. Daniel, a common fast, looking up in the health regiment, the 10-day Daniel fast. So there, there are a number of examples we can look to for fasting. But what makes fasting unique when it comes to the Christian perspective? And I believe there's three reasons for this. Number one, it's a new fasting. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is approached by the disciples of John. Disciples of John asked Jesus, why don't you and your disciples fast? You know, we fast, the Pharisees fast. Why don't you and your disciples fast? Jesus responds with a wedding analogy. He uses the analogy of a bridegroom. He says, the days will, he says, right now when the bridegroom is with them, they don't need to fast. I am with them. But there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. The picture Jesus is giving is that he's the bridegroom. I'm with the disciples. They have me in full. But there will be a time when I am gone. Then they will fast. It is a new fasting because as we fast, we express not our hunger for food, not our hunger for some other craving, but our hunger for all the fullness of God. See, it's aroused by the aroma of Jesus' love and the taste of God's goodness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a new fasting. But it's also, it is not a willful religious act. See, some people fast trying to accomplish some willful act, kind of the old mind over matter thing, for example. 
but it's not a willful act. We give up our spiritual pride because we rely on the fullness and the hunger of God. It is not mastering our physical appetite. It is desiring a great hunger for God. It is this sweet satisfaction and enjoyment that we, see, that we feel in the presence of God's inexhaustible grace. But it also affirms the goodness of food. See, when you, you probably have gone sometime maybe without eating. When you take that next bit of food that you eat, it probably tastes oh so better. Oh so good. Fasting can affirm the goodness of food. Not just so much the goodness of food, but the goodness of the gift. The gift that God has given. Whatever the fast may be, it affirms the goodness and the thanksgiving we have in that gift. We want the giver more than we want the gift. And lastly, it is a feasting of faith. It's saying that I am feasting at the table of Christ and all other allurements, all other desires of the world are broken because of the great satisfaction that I have at the table seat of Jesus Christ. It comes from a confidence in Christ. It is sustained by the power of Christ and it aims to glorify Christ when we fast. It's what Paul was talking about in Philippians. I count all things as loss for the surpassing knowing of Christ. I consider all things rubbish that I may gain Christ. I, Leave all things behind so that I may focus on the glory and the hunger of Jesus Christ. Fasting is basically saying that at this moment in time, for this predetermined period of time, for this purpose, I am aching and yearning to know more of all there is in Christ Jesus. So fasting is very unique to the Christian faith. But notice the, the second point. Notice the problem with fasting. The problem with fasting is elevating man's praise. Pick it up in verse 16 again. It says, when you fast, do not look somber or gloomy faced as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces or they neglect their appearance, depending on which translation you may have. They disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. They have received their reward in full. Now, what is Jesus telling us here? Well, if he, he's not necessarily mandating fasting, but he is telling us we will fast. So Jesus obviously will give us some guidelines on fasting. So first point I want to make is this. Jesus teaches us how not to fast. See, to Jesus, fasting is of great spiritual importance. Now, those of y'all who may have fasted in the past, who, who fasted before, you know, there's some physical you know, requirement to it. There's some physical difficulty that comes with that. There are some physical risks. But the Bible doesn't focus on the physical risks of fasting. It focuses on the importance of the spiritual ramifications, the motivation behind fasting. It's what Jesus said at the start of, of chapter 6, verse number 1. He says, beware of your practicing. Beware of the practicing that you do. If you do this practicing before men, you will receive the reward that's come to you. So Jesus is telling us whether we're praying, whether we're giving, whether we're fasting, 
Why are we doing it? What's the motivation? The motivation is that we're not to fast out loud for people to praise us for our piousness, for our fasting. So he teaches us how not to fast. But he also exposes and rebukes hypocrisy. Again, notice the two words, somber and disfigure. Somber, basically in a sense saying to look gloomy, to look dismal. Here you have these people who are fasting going out in the public. They look like they fasted. I mean, they, look, they put on the face, hey, look at me, I, I fasted, it's difficult. They also, it says they've disfigured their faces or they've neglected their appearance. In some instances, in the, in the old ancient cultures, what they would do is they would cover themselves with ash and sackcloth so that people would know that they were going through this time of fasting, mourning, praying, whatever they were doing. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't go out looking somber. Don't go out neglecting your appearance, looking disfigured. What he's saying is these, these Pharisees, these people, they're making a public show of their fasting. Their worship is insincere. They're fasting, but their worship, their reasoning, their motivation is insincere. It's wrong. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. In Matthew 23, he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who are humbled will be exalted. In the Gospel of Luke, he uses a parable between a Pharisee and a tax collector, showing the difference. The Pharisee was going around talking about how he fasted twice a week, how he prayed, how he gave, how he did this, and yet making this poor tax collector look terrible in the eyes of the Pharisee. So Jesus talks about these hypocrites. Jesus calls them these hypocrites because they're hiding their true motive. Their intent is not to glorify God. Their intent is to be praised by men. See, it would have been better for these guys to go around with a sign on their forehead saying, I'm fasting for the praise of men. The only problem with that is it would have revealed their vanity. Kind of like you know, this past weekend, my wife and I were, went and took a little mini baseball tour. Notice how, I, not to pick on young people, I guess I'm in that generation, but selfies. You know, it's all they did. Instead of watching. Fear you're going to pay a lot of money to watch a ball game. Why are you going to take a thousand pictures of yourself? I mean, it's the same ball. Their vanity, okay? They were, they, it would have been better for them to just say, hey, but again, they would have been vain. It's easier to just go out and show the appearance and hide their vanity, but they didn't. Jesus also expresses the false reward. See, he says that they will receive their reward. Now, think about it. There are very few things in life that are more gratifying than being praised. We seek affirmation. We love affirmation. I remember coaching, you know, win, win the big ball game. You're a genius coach, but then when you lose the next one the next week, you're about to be fired. Hey, but the idea, we love to be praised. It's that gratification that we get when you accomplish something. It's normal. It's natural. We all, we all relish it and enjoy it. But here are these guys they are fasting to be received. Again, in Matthew 6, verse 1, he says, if you do this this way, if you fast, if you pray, if you give, you will receive no reward from your Father in heaven. In verse 16, you have received your reward. You sought the praise of men, 
You're gaining the praise of men, and that's all you will gain. See, if we're not careful when we fast in this manner, we can create two dangers for us. We can seek the wrong reward. Instead of seeking the eternal rewards, we're seeking the applause of people. doesn't last very long. But here also, the second danger is we disguise our true motivation. We disguise our true motive. We're saying we're fasting because we love God, but really, in instance, we're fasting for the praise of men. So there's a problem with fasting. When you fast to elevate your men's, to elevate, falsely elevate men's praise, that can be, a very, that can be dangerous. But notice number three. The purpose of fasting is, in, is an intensely Godward act. The purpose of fasting is an intensely Godward act. Picking up in verse 17. Says, but when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that you, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. So just as Jesus teaches us how not to fast, He teaches us how to fast. He says we should make every effort not to be seen fasting. See, our fasting. If it's motivated by the praise of men, we're going to go out and be seen and applauded by men. But Jesus is saying we should fast to be seen by God. We should be seen by God. That's why he says, fix your hair, put oil on your head, wash your face. But Jesus is not necessarily condemning public corporate fasting. See, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way so that no other may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, he's not condemning the public corporate fasting, even though we should fast, he's saying, not to be seen by men. But he's emphasizing here the motivation. He's emphasizing that motivation. See, fasting is an inward sign of an inward condition. To these Jewish elites who were fasting out in public, they were showing an outward sign of an inward condition. They were going out showing how difficult fasting is because on the inside, their condition was vanity, was self-exalting. That was what these religious leaders were after at this time. But Jesus is telling us it is an inward sign of an inward condition. As we fast... Do we really reckon the word of God to be true? When we come to God in our emptiness, do we reckon it to be true that he will fill us with all of himself, with all the fullness of himself? So Jesus teaches us how we should fast, but he also tests our heart. See, Jesus is pushing us to have an authentic relationship that's personally and vitally important to us. It's real to us. It's not just some vain thing that we can just mark off on a checkbox with. It's vitally real and important to us. And when I come to God in fasting and in prayer, I am saying to God that you are all that matters. I have no other cravings and no other desires but to glorify and to honor you. He testifies of an eternal reward. 
See, when we fast, it is a Godward act. It's not a man-made act. It is an intensely Godward act. We come with the clear intention to be seen by God, not to be seen by men. I'm saying to God that I'm coming to you because I crave you more than food. I crave you more than drugs. I crave you more than sex. I crave crave you more than praise and admiration. I crave you more than money or a job promotion. I crave you and I hunger you because I want to be filled by you. See, the deeper that we walk with Christ, the more intimate we get with Christ. The hungrier we get for Christ. So he testifies of this eternal reward. Last point I want to make is this. The persistence of fasting is seeking the reward of helplessness and hope in Christ. Catch that. Seeking the reward of helplessness and hope in Christ. In verse eight, the last part of verse 18. He says, your father who sees what is done in secret will, will reward you. See, the reward of our persistent fasting is rooted in a homesickness for God. Now think about a time when you were homesick. I can think about a time when I was homesick. Maybe you were, you know, away on a business trip. Maybe military, you were away on tour. You young people away at camp or whatever. You were away from home. You were so homesick, you could not even eat. You didn't even want to eat because you desired to be home. See, it's rooted in a homesickness for God. Fasting reveals our, public, our, our bottom line passion. He created food and water to give us an illustration of what faith is like. That's why he tells us, I am the bread of life. No one comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. It's this homesickness that I have. I am driven by a deep desire to be hungry for the fullness of God that I push away all cravings, including food or any other craving you want to fill in the blank with. So it's a rooted in a homesickness for God. But it also is a, also the reward of persistent fasting. It denies our earthly merits. It denies our earthly works. Now, I love the illustration that God gives us of Jesus' fasting. See, back early in the gospel, we get a picture of how Christ himself fasted. See, I believe we owe a measure of our salvation to the fasting that Jesus did. Think about it. He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He fasted 40 days. Here he is standing on the threshold of the most important ministry in the history of mankind, the salvation of mankind. If he doesn't obey, if he falls prey to the temptation of Satan, we're, we're still damned to this world. But yet God shows the very purpose, the hunger of what fasting can be. See, at the very beginning of this ministry, he threatened the ministry of Jesus by destruction, by tempting, by allowing Satan to tempt him during his fasting. But yet Jesus 
tri- he began his ministry with fasting. He triumphed over the enemy through fasting. He accomplished our salvation in some measure by going through the fasting. That's the reward that he's talking about. It's not our gain and our merit that we, that we gain. It's the salvation of Christ, and he gives us that picture in what Jesus did. The eternal reward comes not by buying it or working for it. It comes without a cost. It is a free gift. We thirst for it. We desire it because we gain that inexhaustible grace that God wants us to have. And then lastly, our reward focuses on God's ultimate glory. When we fast, we are expressing our emptiness to God in the hope that he's going to fill us with all of himself. See, when we come to God, whether it's in praying or in fasting or in giving, he knows our desires. He knows what we want. He, he made us. We're his workmanship. He knows what we want. When we come to God, I'm basically saying, I am empty, but you're full. I'm hungry and starving, but you are the bread of heaven. I am thirsty, but you are the fountain of life. I'm weak, but you are strong. I'm poor, but you are rich. I'm foolish, but you are wise. I'm broken, but you're whole. I'm dying, but you've given me life. That's the cry of our heart when we come to him in fasting. We come to him crying and longing and hungering for him because we want that eternal rest in God. See, when God sees us in this way, when he sees us coming to him in in this expression of emptiness, he has no choice but to respond. It's in his nature. His glory is at stake. He rewards our fasting because he sees the cry of our heart, not because we desire our own selfish needs, but because we've come in our emptiness to be filled with his glory. See, God is most glorified when when we are most satisfied in him. As I close out the message this morning, uh, my hope is that you've gained maybe a new perspective on fasting. I know I definitely have. I was uh, nervous and scared to death about this particular passage. But it's been a rewarding study in looking at fasting. See, fasting is not just some universal religious act. It's not something we just do for health benefits, although if you don't eat, you probably will lose weight. It's not just something we do to advocate a political cause. We don't, just, we don't fast to be seen and admired by people for how spiritual we are. We don't even fast and pray to influence others. We come to God in our fasting because we hunger for the supremacy of God in all things, in all of our affections. We fast because we hunger to see the supremacy of God in all the decisions that we make. We fast because we hunger to see the supremacy of God in our marriage. We fast because we hunger to see the supremacy of God in the lives of our children. We fast because we hunger for the supremacy of God in the lives of men to be spiritually courageous. We fast because we hunger for the supremacy of God and establishing righteousness and justice in the world. We fast because we hunger for God's supremacy 
for the joy of all people and the salvation that they can have as we go out and evangelize. See, God is calling us to this God-ordained living, praying, giving, and fasting. If you want to experience that supernatural sonic boom of a lifetime, it can only come by being filled with the fullness of God. See, come to God with a praying and a fasting and a hungering to know more of him. But remember what Jesus says in our translation. Comb your hair. Wash your face. Let the Father who sees in secret observe just how hungry you truly are for him in fasting. Because the Father who sees you in secret, he is brimming with so many rewards, so many everlasting rewards for his glory and for your enjoyment. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you once again for this morning. We thank you for teaching us. We thank you for how you've taught us in your word to pray, to fast, to come to you with a hunger. It's my prayer and my desire, selfishly I know in my own heart, to come to you more in hunger for you rather than selfish ambition of my own. Or is my prayer that somebody will walk out of here tonight, this morning, changed. Thank you for the worship that we've allowed to come and worship you. Thank you for filling us, giving us your free gift, that we can come to you because of your inexhaustible grace. I pray as we enter in this time of invitation, Lord, pray that there's anybody that's, anybody's heart that's stirring, pray that they will be moved by your spirit to respond to that call. We love you, praise and thank you, and all God's people said, amen.